0: One of the many things that gets missed from oftentimes the reality of these hymns is the truthfulness in which the hymn writers were writing those songs about. And especially when we think about our Lord being wounded for us, there is no uh, greater reminder of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Well, if you would, go with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8 this evening. Matthew chapter number 8. And we'll be looking at verses 23 through 27 with what I think will probably be a familiar uh, passage for many of us. Uh, I never want to make any assumptions about a text and never want to make any assumptions that people are aware of it. There certainly are times when uh, people are hearing things for the first time or that through the Spirit uh, he will reveal to us something that we had not yet uh, witnessed. In this particular text, in these verses, we see uh, that the Lord himself had given orders uh, to follow him in the previous verses, and we saw... How the Lord, by saying, follow me, and we looked at the examples last week of those individuals who uh, the first man tried to follow with uh, just overzealous about following the Lord. And the Lord told him about how difficult of a life it was going to be to follow him and how he had not considered or counted the costs. And he reminded him about the life that he would live, that it would not be an easy one. That scribe was expecting a life of ease to follow the Lord. And, of course, the second man um, asked to bury his father first, and we dealt with the Lord's response to that man. But in these verses tonight, we see that back in verse number 18, The Lord had given a commandment to depart unto the other side. So we pick up in verse 23 what the Lord had called the disciples to do back in verse 18. So we kind of look at verses 19, 20, 21, and 22 as an interlude, as Jesus had given sailing orders, if you will, to his disciples. So when we pick up there in verse 23, it says, When he was entered into a ship... His disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? We want to consider that thought tonight. What manner of man is this? What manner of man is this? Now, we do see that back there in verse 18 that the Lord had told them that they were going to depart unto the other side. Of course, there is some, uh, there is some idea here that the Lord already knew about the safe passage that would occur across this body of water. Uh, he did not say that you're going to get to the other side, and before we get there, we're going to endure a great storm, we're going to endure great waves, but he did say that we are going over to the other side. Uh, This would have been departing to the other side of the sea of Tiberias is where this sea would have been. And where the boats would have landed would have been in the country of Gadara. Now Gadara is going to be important because next week when we look at Gadara, we're going to see that familiar story of the men that are possessed with devils. Uh, and the exceeding fierceness of them, but this is the area in which they are going to land. Uh, this is, would have been east of Jordan, and there is going to be a great miracle where Jesus is going to uh, rescue a man possessed with what's referred to as a legion of devils. Now, there's a couple of observations we're going to make tonight, and we're going to take this passage uh, not making the assumption that uh, uh, we don't see the obvious, but one of the obvious observations is the fact that Jesus chose to go by water. He chose to go by water. Uh, There were other routes. There were other ways to get to where they were going. They could have gone around. This is not a situation where the only way to get to Gadara would have been to go over or through the Sea of Tiberias. There was a way around to get there. But it's important to note that Jesus intentionally chose to go by water. Now, anytime Jesus chooses to do something like this, it is often for the purposes of manifesting some aspect or characteristic of his glory. In other words, this was not just going to be an uneventful trip across the Sea of Tiberias. Now, this particular sea was known to have uh, storms that would come up. Uh, it is known to have times when it would be uncertain. So, but keep in mind that Jesus chose to take his disciples across the sea, and it was for the purposes of manifesting his power. Secondly, second observation is we notice that not only did Jesus choose to go by water, we do see his disciples followed him. So they did get on the boat with him. Uh, they did follow him. There doesn't appear to be any sort of resistance to getting on the, on the boat. There doesn't seem to be any disciples standing up and saying, you know, Lord, we don't have to go across the Sea of Tiberias. We can actually, we can take the route to stay on the land. We can go around. But we see that the disciples followed him. Now, when Matthew pens this, we're not told how many disciples there are. And there are some varying opinions on this particular text as to whether or not this was just the 12, or was this disciples in name and people who identified with him. Uh, for our uh, message tonight, we're going to take the position, uh, and again, we, we might disagree on this, but we're going to take the position that these were the twelve and the 12 that went with him and the others remained on the land, they did not go. So we are identifying these disciples as 12 willing disciples who were willing to take this route onto the sea. Uh, These men would have been aware that there was a possibility of dangerous conditions. They are disciples who were going into this event Eyes wide open, realizing that this may not be an easy journey. Uh, very similar to how we think about our lives as followers of Christ, it has never been promised to us that this will be an easy journey. It's never been promised to us that we would not run into difficulties and dangers and and even snares along the way. But as disciples, uh, we ought to be willing to go with Him, and these disciples certainly go willingly. Now, that's important. Because of the events that are going, to unfold, are going to unfold. Verse 24 tells us how quickly things seem to grow dangerous. Notice it says, And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea. Almost immediately, these disciples are now confronted with a very perilous event. Remember, Jesus had told them back in verse number 20, as he was talking to the scribe, he says, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man hath not where to lay his head. Here is one of those examples of where the difficult life of following Christ is presenting itself right before their eyes. There arises a great tempest or a great storm. Now, All of us understand tonight, I hope we understand, that Christ had the power to prevent the storm in the first place. Uh, This storm did not have to arise. He could have prevented this storm from happening. Now remember, he had a purpose in taking his disciples through the difficult waters. And friends, I want you to understand that when God takes us through difficult waters and he takes us through difficult trials, he has a purpose in allowing those difficulties and allowing those trials to come into our life. They are never without purpose. And yet these disciples should never have expected a pleasant sail across the sea. But rather they should have expected some danger. They should have expected that their faith was going to be put to the test. But remember, what Jesus is doing is he is doing this for their sakes. Notice it talks about this tempest and says, in so much that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. We're talking about a storm that the waves are going up over the sides and it is filling the ship. Now remember, we don't know exactly what kind of a boat this was, but the assumption is, is that this was maybe just one of the disciples' fishing boats. This was not some luxury liner like we think about today. This was a, probably a relatively small vessel, but nothing that is, uh, would, would have been uh, exempt from the great trials that are hitting and striking the side of it. But remember, Jesus is using this as an opportunity to show his power and to show uh, who he is. Uh, It is uh, very profound that the Bible says he was asleep. What's an interesting little side note about this is this is the only time in scripture we actually find Jesus asleep. Now we find other times where he's weary, but where it actually uses the term asleep You don't ever read about it. But at this particular moment, in this most perilous time, Jesus Christ is asleep. Now, we know that many times he was in prayer all night long, but we see that he was asleep. Was he asleep because of some kind of a security that, like Jonah had, or was this some sort of a reality to show? His humanity. He was asleep because he was tired. Jesus Christ was 100% man, 100% God. In his humanity, he was sleeping. Oftentimes, we read a lot into scripture that probably was never intent to be read into. He is asleep because he was a man and he was weary. He was tired. Now, again, the reality is, is how could he stay asleep Uh, when everyone else is in a panic. Of course, he did have a sense of dependence upon God as Father. And he could lay his head down knowing the sovereignty of the Father. But the main reason that Jesus is staying asleep is for the very purpose in which he's revealing in his disciples. He's asleep to try the faith of his disciples. He's asleep... To see whether or not his disciples will actually trust him when the storm arises. He did not do this to get away from him. He didn't do this just to try to be cruel to them. But he did this with a design of being awakened by his disciples. Now, this is really a two-pronged approach that I think Jesus is taking with this. His, his, he is sleeping because he's tired, but he's also going to reveal an intent for his disciples to wake him up. And I want you to notice what, how the Bible uses these words. It says in verse 25, And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. Perish. Uh, There's no doubt this was a frightening situation. There's no doubt that this was a situation where the disciples, now get this, some of these disciples were fishermen. They were used, they were accustomed to dangerous waves. They were accustomed to storms rising up. So what was it about this storm that made them so fearful? I mean, think about this from a very logical, practical standpoint. They've been in the boat many times without Jesus in the boat. This particular time, Jesus is in the boat with them, and they're frightened. They're frightened to the point where they say, Lord, save us. We are going to die. Now, some have said this is a prayer. Other commentators just simply say this is a petition. And I think we could could split hairs over whether or not this is a prayer or this is a petition. But either way, they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, Lord, save us. Which means that the disciples at this moment believed he could save them. And they were begging him to do just that. So there is a sense of belief that Jesus can save us. Now, remember, Jesus came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost, and we know that the only means of salvation is to call upon the name of the Lord. They call him Lord and then petition him or pray, Save us. They were willing that Jesus was the only one in which could save them. Their plea was based on a real fear of death. We perish. This is the actual language of fear. When you are scared to death, we've heard that, right? Here is the principle of being so frightened that you think the next step in this situation, certain death is on the doorstep. They were looking upon themselves and they looked at their situation. They looked at the water. They looked at the waves. They looked at the ship. They looked at the circumstances, they looked at what was going on, and they said, this is only going to end one way. We are going to die. We perish. But notice as they awaken Jesus, they look to him as the only means and the only way that deliverance can be accomplished. Now I'm saying all that because Jesus' response to to them is quite peculiar. Because it appears that they are trusting him to save them. They are begging him because they know he can do it. But Jesus responds with a very striking question. Why are ye fearful? O ye of little faith were they or were they not demonstrating some sort of faith by looking upon Jesus as the only means of their rescue? We see that they certainly knew what they were saying. Their plea was the language of fear, but it was also the language of fervency. They were people who were begging for their lives to be spared. Yet Jesus was asleep. He was asleep in order to draw out of them this opportunity to call upon him in full assurance and in full faith. Notice what it says as Jesus says to them, Why? Why are ye fearful? Now, this is a rebuke. This is more than just a strong dislike of. This is a strong rebuke. Now, let me establish something here. He is not rebuking them for disturbing him, right? Jesus is not saying, why did you wake me up? He's not bothered by that. But what he is disturbed by is because they have disturbed themselves with fear. This is not Jesus saying, you know, I was resting very well until you came and bothered me. Why are you bothering me? What he's disturbed by is the reality that why are you so fearful? Now notice the pattern. Jesus rebuked first and then he delivers them. Notice it's not the other way around. He doesn't deliver them first and then rebuke them. He rebukes them first and then he actually does deliver them. In order for Jesus Christ to prepare us for the mercy In which he is about to give to us, even in the mercy he gives to us in our salvation, we must be rebuked and reproved for our sin first. He rebukes their sin of fear. Notice this why are ye fearful? He's speaking to his disciples, his disciples are fearful. People who don't know the Lord would have every reason in the world to be fearful. People who are not aware of His mercy, who are not aware of His grace, who are not aware of who He is, we'd have every reason to be fearful. But why are His disciples fearful? There's a direct connection between fear and faith. That's what Jesus is pointing out. He's disturbed by the lack of understanding about where their fear is coming from. They are fearful because their faith is little. That's what Jesus is drawing out. "O ye of little faith is directed at the reality that the spring and the cause of your fear is little faith." He's not telling them you don't have any faith. He's not telling them that you are not my disciples anymore, but he is saying that my strong dislike is for the fear that is disturbing you because it is directly connected to your faith. There are many of us and there are many who have true faith, but that faith is very weak and it does very little. There are days when even Christ's disciples are going to be disturbed by a fearful thing like this. But the prevalence of the reality of how many times fear overcomes us is a direct connection to how strong or weak our faith is. So for example, folks, if I am living in a constant state of fear every single day, The spring and the cause of my daily fear that seems to never lessen is I am guilty of little faith. It's directly connected and that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying I am disturbed by the reality, not that you woke me up from a nap. I am disturbed by the little faith that's causing you to be fearful. Now all of us, certainly have times where we are fearful. Jesus is, the little faith leads to us to have a sense of unbelief. The cause of it is that little faith. That is displeasing to the Lord. It is displeasing to the Lord when our faith is small. But you will notice that Jesus, after He rebukes them, He delivers them. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Here's this sovereign hand of God at work. He rebukes the sea. He rebukes the winds. He has power over nature. He can do whatever he pleases and chooses to do. The same power that saves us, the same power that keeps us, is the same power in which Jesus speaks to the waves and he tells them to be still. He rebukes the wind. Nobody else could do this. Notice how easily he solved the problem with a word. He rebuked the wind. And the sea. It's as simple as this. He told it to stop and it stopped. We know Moses commanded the waters with a rod. Of course, that was the rod of God. We know that there's this absolute dominion that God has over all things, over the creatures of the earth, over every body of water, over everything that he has created. And yet, look how easily this was done. He just simply said, stop, and it stopped. But not only want you to see how easy it was but how effective it was look how suddenly everything came to a dead stop it went from wind and sea coming up over the boat to dead calm now if you've ever been anywhere near an ocean during a storm even when the storm passes that water remains choppy for a while this went to dead calm this went to like Like glass, like a sea that looks like a sheet of glass. That is effectual power. That is power that says there is no one else. All of a sudden, this storm that normally would have waters that are still raging water, that is still maybe white capping, this comes to a dead stop. Which by way of application should have ended all fears and strengthened the faith of these disciples to where they became, nothing else should ever disturb us. I'd love to say that this is the last time the disciples ever deal with little faith, but it isn't. This is going to be a repeated process where they're going to be continually reminded and rebuked by the Lord Jesus himself, saying, why do you have such little faith? How did he know how little their faith was? By the amount of fear that they exhibit?" How do we know if our faith is weak and small? By how much fear we exhibit or how much fear maybe nobody else sees. Fear is directly connected with our weakness or strength of faith. Now, I don't believe Jesus anywhere says, you should never be fearful. But I believe that he is saying that this fear that is overtaking them was a fear that should not be the fear that is in the life of a person who truly knows Jesus Christ. Now notice that all of this happens. And an immediate response, verse 27, but the men marveled. This is an excited, excited astonishment. They are blown away that Jesus simply spoke and they ask they that question. What manner of man is this? What type of a person can speak to the wind and the sea and have it just stop? What kind of a person can do this type of miracle? Now we never see, we see the disciples being given power to cast out demons. We see the disciples being given power to even heal to some extent. But do you realize the disciples were never given this type of power? They were never given the power to actually stand on the boat and say to the wind and the sea, stop. But yet Jesus could. What manner of man is this? They had, they had long been acquainted with the sea. They had hours and hours and hours upon the sea. They had experienced waves. They had experienced storms. And they had never seen water and wind go dead calm like that ever in their life. They had never seen it. This had all the signatures and the characteristics of a miracle. Now we use the word miracle in our common day vocabulary and we often use it wrongly. We take something ordinary and we say, well, that was a miracle. Miracles are of the Lord's doing. They are things that only the Lord can do. This marvelous thing in our eyes, this thing that He has done is marvelous in our eyes. Why? Because even the winds and the sea obey Him. They obey Him. What an admiration. This statement, what manner of man is this? is the disciples' acknowledgement of how much they admire the power of what Jesus Christ has. There has been none so mighty, there's been none so powerful that could do this. Why did they admire Him? This, This passage almost outlines itself. Why did they admire Him? Because the winds and the sea obey Him. Just on that account alone, folks, Christ should be admired by us. Our fear should begin to lessen as our faith is strengthened and increased because we are saved and redeemed and converted by a christ who can speak to the waves and can speak to the sea and speak to the wind and can bring it to a sudden dead stop just by talking. And yet every day, we're reminded of just how little our faith can often be. When fear starts, the minute our eyes open for the day to start. Fear often Arrests us almost immediately. And yet, we ought to have that resonate in our heart day after day. Jesus' words to his disciples, why are ye fearful? You can almost turn his question into the answer. You're fear, you are fearful because your faith is small. You are fearful because you have little faith. Not that you have no faith, but you have a little faith that is allowing your fears to overrun your faith. It would be one thing for us to say to one another, don't be afraid if we didn't have a reason to not be. In other words, if I say to you, don't be afraid, but I can't give you a reason why you shouldn't be afraid, that's really of no comfort. That's mostly just wishful thinking. Don't be afraid. Um, It probably won't happen. But when we have a God who can speak the winds and the sea to stop, should we really be as fearful as we really are? Now remember, there were people even in Jesus' day who pretended to cure diseases, they pretended to do things. But here, he not only commanded the wind, but think about this. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus? He commanded the wind, but when he told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse number 8, he says, you cannot even know the way the wind comes, when it's going, where it's coming from. And yet Jesus says, I have command of the wind. But he told Nicodemus, you, you can't even know where it comes from. The number one reason we're afraid is because it is out of our control. Often fear is a direct result of a lack of control. It's the same fear that a person unreasonably rationalizes in their mind. And this is a crude example. We've used this example in our house before. It's why people feel safer in a car than they do in a plane. Because they say, the plane, I just don't feel safe. You know why you don't feel safe and you're fearful is because there's a pilot flying it. You think you're safe because you're the car and you're driving the car, and yet you are more likely to die in that car accident than you are in that plane. It's all about the control. We're fearful about things that we are not in control of. But I have news for us. We are not in control of any aspect of our life, truly. Now we think we have parts of control, but we really don't have control of it. But remember this Christ Himself, if He can do this, if He can command the wind, then He can do anything. That ought to do enough, just that alone tonight ought to do enough for us to encourage our confidence and comfort that even in the greatest of storms, we don't have to be fearful. Why? Because he who can tell the storm to cease is mightier than any of the floods of water or questions or doubts or fears that rise up in us. What Jesus Christ was really doing by commanding the wind and the sea was showing his power over creation. Remember, Jesus Christ was just as much a part of creation as God the Father and God the Spirit was. The same one who created the world, the someone who made the world, the moment he rebuked creation, even the waters had to cease. The wind had to stop. Upon his word, the storm stopped. Now listen, you and I don't know anything about what we're going to face. But we can take tonight, take comfort in knowing that when these storms of fear come into us, that there ought to be the realization of the great calm and the great calmness that this Holy Spirit gives us it dwells within us. What manner. If this man can do this. There's nothing he can't do. If he could save your soul. Think about this. If he could do the greatest need. Could atone and pay for your sin. There's nothing in this life. That he is not capable of dealing with. Because the greatest miracle that Jesus Christ ever did was paying the sin debt for your sin and for my sin and redeeming our soul and converting us in order that one day we will be presented blameless and without spot and without blemish before the Father. I believe, as we'll read next week, Jesus is doing all of this in a perfect sequence. He's taught them about discipleship, He has showed them what happens in the storm. He's revealed to them their fear. And when he gets them over to Gadara, he's going to show them that not only does he have power over the sea and power over the wind and power over creation, but he has power over the devil. He's got power over the demons. That Satan at no point in time, a demon at no point in time can have power and control over you unless the Lord permits it. That ought to bring us great calm. We all need to have a calm spirit that is confident in Jesus Christ. Our fears have been tested the last couple of years. This will not be the last time that our fears are tested. But remember, it's not our fear being tested. It's our faith is being tested. Because how fearful we are indicates where our faith really is. So next week, we'll pick up with that amazing story of that, those demons, those legions of demons, and how the Lord, even those demons, acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. And they're going to ask a very searching question. What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? So we'll deal with that passage next week. Let's finish with the hymn tonight on page 375.